Welcome to the Visegrad Insight podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. It's March 28th, 2022, and we're here at the Visegrad Insight office. I'm Miles Maftian, editorial director, and I'm sitting here with Kamil Jaramczyk. All eyes now are focused on the region, with the biggest news from this week being the Joe Biden's visit to Europe and his speech in Warsaw on Saturday. This was a last-minute trip that was essentially meant to reassure allies along NATO's eastern flank. But interestingly, it brought more controversy as opposed to reassurance. So Biden declared forcefully on Saturday that Russian President Vladimir Putin should no longer remain in power, an unabashed challenge. And this was met with a sort of an immediate condemnation from French President Emmanuel Macron, for instance. Macron warned against escalation yesterday regarding Ukraine, saying he wouldn't use this type of wording. Stopping the war without escalation is the key objective. So on the one hand, you you see the visit, you have you have Macron and others that are telling Biden to back down. And then on the other hand, you have Ukrainian MP Ina Sovzun. Uh, what she did is she was saying... Uh, in a tweet that she didn't hear a single word that made her, as a Ukrainian, feel reassured that the West will help more than they're doing right now. So while she's happy that Biden did reassure Poland, the bombs are actually exploding in Kiev, in Kharkiv, not in Warsaw. So, of course, again, it's another stalemate, it appears, and there is a lot more to come. But what we want to do is sort of take a step back and see what else is happening in the region, because we know that there's several key elections coming up in Hungary and Serbia. So, Camille, what do we have? Take it away. Thank you, Miles. Um, yes, uh, two important elections are happening uh, by the end of this week on Sunday, both uh, t- both uh, headed by parties that are parties and leaders that are known for their illiberal ways, but also towards their friendliness um, towards Russia, which before the war was, of course, uh, frowned upon and um, and looked down upon, but now is being called out by even what was once viewed as, um, you know, staunch allies. Uh, the stakes are obviously that much higher now. Exactly, exactly. Um, so these uh, elections, of course, are in Serbia and in Hungary, and it is uh, Viktor Orban and, uh, of Hungary and Aleksandr Vuvic. Of um, of Serbia, which are um, which are currently facing um, the ballot box, but from uh, from polling and from trends, it is seeming that the incumbents will be staying in power. It's uh, the um, opposition in Hungary has um, been uh, has united unprecedentedly and has and under Markiz, Petr Markizai has been putting up a, a fight. But it seems that uh, due to uh, trends and uh, Hungar- the Hungarian, what the Hungarians consider important, uh, Viktor Orban's message uh, is, uh, is is more convincing to them, I think. Yeah. yeah, and let's not forget that Orban has essentially created a, a system where he can he can lose the popular vote and and still stay in power. Yeah, almost in the sort of U.S. sense, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, Hungary has 160, uh, 106 individual constituencies that are heavily gerrymandered. Uh, so this is obviously favoring the ruling party. Yeah. So the opposition needs to basically be three to four percent ahead in in the vote in order to actually overcome this disadvantage, right? Of course. So even if these elections are necessarily free, uh, the question is is whether they are unfair or not. But 
I think you're highlighting the fact that we're calling into question whether these uh, whether the election is actually free. Yeah, of course, of course, and it's not just us who are um, uh, doing this. Of course, the uh, the Hungarian opposition has asked the OSCE to uh, to send a full mission to Hungary to observe the elections, and has uh, and the OSCE has actually released an interim report uh, on the twenty first of March, which highlighted many concerns. One of them are, of course, the media uh, the the media situation in Hungary uh, absolutely polarized, but also the fact that they. Uh, on the day of the election, they are also holding a referendum on um, on the so-called um, on the so-called uh, child protection law, which of course uh, garnered a lot of uh, a lot of uh, pro- um, uh, condemnation from the EU when it was uh, introduced. Uh, which of course is um, is another tactic to get more radical, uh, not radical, but uh, more people more in favor of uh, yeah, Fidesz. So apart from the actual elections that you see. Um, we do also see that there is a lot of stark condemnation towards uh, Viktor Orban more generally across the region. What have you seen in Czech Republic, for instance? Yes, yes. Uh, so in the Czech Republic, uh, the Czech Ministry of Defense, uh, Minister of Defense, uh, Jana uh, Cernohova, uh, we will not travel to Budapest for next week's meeting of the defense ministers of the Visegrad Four, which will be taking place on the 30th and uh, 31st of March. Uh, she said that she will not, and I quote, uh, take part in Orban's election campaign. And she also wrote uh, in her tweets that I have always supported the V4 and I am very sorry that cheap Russian oil is more important to Hungarian politicians than Ukrainian blood in a strong uh, uh, on her uh, Twitter. Very strong. Yes. Uh, in, in Hungary, they uh, they started uh, criti- criticizing her personally in the media as well because of the state, uh, the strong statement. Uh, but uh, it's not just uh, the Czech Republic, which uh, had a quite a crucial election which did overturn their uh, their um, political elite, but also uh, Polish uh, President Andrzej Duda in an interview with um, TVN 24, uh, which of course is not is actually independent media in Poland. He criticized Viktor Orban's closeness to Vladimir Putin, and he actually criticized the Pax nuclear power plant, which uh, he said is uh, is a Russian plant. So uh, Poland, who has been um, Hungary's, um, has always been viewed as uh, Hungary's uh, uh, partner in crime <laughs> in these things, is also very much against what's going uh, Orban's turn, uh, and of course, not to mention. Um, Zelensky's strong words against uh, Viktor Orban in the the European Commission. Yeah, I think that a lot of times lumping in uh, the liberal tactics of of peace and Fidesz, so essentially looking at Poland and Hungary in this way, you do see some stark uh, similarities, but at the same point you have a lot of differences now, and specifically when an actual realized threat of the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine comes, the divergencies of the the two countries themselves. And I think kind of going back to President Biden's speech, you you also saw this. And um, it was a, a call for for allies who are essentially supporting liberal democratic values. Um, so this and more this week. Uh, now what we'll do is we'll take it to the second portion of the podcast. Hello, dear listeners. Thank you for joining us for another episode in the series of podcasts on the Western Balkans. My name is Tetiana Palagruic, and I run the EU Neighborhood Program at Visegrad Insight. Today, my guest is Dimitar Nikolovsky, who is an executive director at the Eurosync Center for European Strategies, based in Skopje, North Macedonia. 
Welcome, Dimitar. Uh, thank you, Tatiana, for inviting me to your podcast. I would like to talk to you about the most recent trip of Joseph Borrell, EU High Representative for Foreign Affairs to the Western Balkan countries that took place from 13 to 16th of March. And my first question would be, what do you think this recent trip of Borrell's to the region was about? What was his goal and do you think he achieved it? Uh, well, he visited three countries of the Western Balkans. Uh, first, he went to North Macedonia, then he visited Albania, and finally he visited Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, it was obviously this uh, visit was done in light of the uh, recent war in Ukraine and the Russian uh, aggression. Uh, the general goal, I would say, of his visit was to reinvigorate uh, the EU integration process of the Western Balkans. This is one goal, and more specifically, also to uh, reiterate uh, the support of the EU uh, towards the Western Balkans uh, and to receive confirmation uh, from leaders in the Western Balkans that they are also supporting uh, the European Union in its reaction uh, to the Russian aggression. Now, whether this was achieved, uh, it can be quite, um, uh, let's say, discussed and negotiable. Uh, I wouldn't say so. Uh, first of all, because of the choice of countries uh, that, that, uh, that were done. Uh, so two, uh, two of these countries are what uh, we can say the, the, the good students uh, in this whole process. Whereas the other one, uh, so this is uh, North Macedonia and Albania, uh, whereas the third one is the one that is at most uh, risk. Uh, I would say at the moment, um, considering security in the in the Western Balkans, uh, but they're also uh, easier ones. So he didn't want to touch Serbia, uh, which didn't uh, join the um, uh, the sanctions against Russia. Uh, also, highly problematic uh, uh, Kosovo and the relations uh, because of the relations uh, with Serbia, and then Montenegro who also didn't join the, the sanctions. Um, so I would say that uh, he could have at least uh, gone to one of the more problematic countries in order to uh, reiterate uh, the EU's engagement uh, in the region. Okay, thank you. Uh, my next, next question is, uh, what do you think were the highlights of this trip? Well, I will go back first maybe to the first question again, uh, especially regarding uh, North Macedonia and, and Albania. Uh, he said that he's going there in light of uh, growing Euroscepticism, especially in North Macedonia, in light of the uh, Bulgarian veto and the stalemate in terms of uh, uh, the starting of the negotiations for the uh, for the two for the two countries. And I would say that uh, it was not really well received by the expert audience and by the general public in North Macedonia because he only uh, used uh, old messages that have been repeated over and over again. Uh, and much to the frustration, uh, I would say, of uh, especially Macedonian uh, citizens, that there is still a will of the EU for these two countries to join, uh, but there are no guarantees and no no time frame. So this has been repeated so many times, and we use uh, in local language two expressions. One is used for food, and the other one is used uh, for clothing. One is for the food is uh, uh, bayato which means stale, 
old food. And for clothing, it means it's the word is vetvo, uh, which means rugged or worn out. Uh, so this this is how these messages were uh, uh, were uh, received uh, uh, here. Uh, however, this was not the highlight. The highlight was definitely uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina because he visited uh, the EU four Altea force. Uh, uh, there, uh, where he gave, I would say, legitimacy and additional uh, support uh, to the reinforcements that were given to this peacekeeping mission by 500 uh, uh, more troops. So more or less, uh, the, the numbers uh, doubled. Uh, so to and this was really um, connected to actual uh, threats and uh, real policies. Uh, that are needed to be uh, done in the uh, in the country, especially in light of uh, the security issues. Okay, I see. Uh, will this visit change anything in terms of the Western Balkan countries' EU accession? You think? No, I really don't. Uh, I don't think that this uh, visit will change. I had a joke in uh, local media that uh, this was a sort of a therapeutic uh, visit uh, for Mr. Borrell. Uh, because I can imagine that the situation in Brussels is a lot more tense than the situation in Skopje and Tirana at the moment. Uh, so I think that uh, they had a meeting in Brussels and didn't know what to do. So they said that, okay, let's do something that is easy, but also uh, gives an image that we are doing something. However, in the long run, uh, I don't think that this visit would have any impact on the overall process of the European integration of uh of the uh, of the uh, region, uh, especially since no guarantees were given about the lifting of the Bulgarian veto that is blocking uh, North Macedonia and Albania. Uh, during his visit to Bosnia, uh, Joseph Borrell mentioned that the EU is prepared and resolute in defending our values against external threats to maintain stability in the EU and our closest neighborhood. Uh, what do you think such defense could imply? Well, in terms of uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, definitely the deployment of, uh, of peacekeeping uh, forces uh, that makes sense. For the other countries, I would not uh, I would not include uh, the involvement uh, of any armed forces uh, for the uh, for the defense and for the peace, peacekeeping. But uh, in general, I would say that this implies uh, implies um, support for resilience measures of the local institutions and helping regional cooperation uh, in line of, uh, of um, uh, regional uh, defense and, and stability. And one more really important question, one that I hope uh, it implies, and uh, this is um, uh, the compensation measures considering uh, the, um, the economic uh, uh, the economic threats that are, po- that are posed on the whole EU, but also on the Western Balkans who are joining uh, the sanctions uh, against um, uh, against Russia. At, at the moment, we have no guarantees that we will be included in any uh, recovery plan, but I'm aware that um, uh, Prime Minister Edi Rama from Albania said that they would really like uh, for us to be included, and I know that it's in the interest of, uh, of the citizens of the Western Balkans. Thank you, Dimitar. I also wanted to mention about uh, our 
most recent scenario report, uh, five scenarios for Western Balkan countries 2030. Uh, Dimitri, you were a part of this, of this uh, publication, of this uh, whole uh, enterprise, so to say. You were one of the authors of this uh, of the scenarios. But um, I, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, going back to this to this report, uh, which scenario uh, do you think? personally, is the most plausible out of those five for the region? I think that actually the one that I was working on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, the scenario that is that is called elusive Europeanization, uh, which, uh, which, which uh, implies that um, uh, we will not, uh, uh, the EU will not completely abandon the process of European integration, but it will not be so enthusiastic as it has been up until now, because it is, um, it will be, uh, suffering internal threats, uh, in terms of uh, stability and especially in terms of democracy. Uh, so, uh, in, in the whole EU integration process, the EU would be declaratively much stricter. And then uh, this uh, strictness uh, will imply that the process would not be, uh, go ahead because there would not be so much incentive for local elites uh, to engage in uh, painful, for them, uh, painful uh, processes. So not completely abandoning the process, but definitely uh, holding the Western Balkans at sort of arm's length. Thank you, Dimitar. So this is only one of the scenarios out of five, as I mentioned before. So I do uh, uh, encourage our listeners to go to the Visegrad Insight page, uh, but also to the link in the description to this podcast uh, and, and have a look at this report that is, that is very interesting. Uh, Dimitar, thank you very much for the conversation. Thank you very much, Tatiana. I wanted to add that this uh, podcast is supported by the International Visegrad Fund. Uh, who is our partner. Thank you.